so it, it's huge that the government now uh, has to bother with competitive gaming in some way. It has to, it has to contemplate it. it. Has to make regulations or reinterpret old regulations to deal with it. Uh, that shows that the competitive gaming scene is really big now. Uh, that it has some clout. That it can get the government to listen to it. weeks back, I mentioned that I was working on a couple of different stories related to the fighting game community. Uh, one of them went up on the site not too long ago, looking into the anti-collusion rule that the scene is trying to implement. Uh, and the other, which was actually the first one I was looking into, was about uh, the United States government recognizing uh, certain League of Legends players and uh, granting them visas so they could come into the country in order to compete. This is seen as sort of a watershed moment for uh, esports or competitive gaming, however you want to characterize it, and We'll get to the characterization a little bit further because it's a point of contention in the community, or at least some communities. Uh, but I got in touch with David Ultra David Graham, who uh, is a lawyer by day and a fighting game commentator uh, by day and night. Uh, it's just something he does in addition to having his own firm. So he's kind of in a unique position to comment on how this impacts the competitive scene, how it impacts... Uh, from a legal perspective, and he recently wrote a, a pretty uh, lengthy blog post uh, sort of hypothesizing how this might look in the future as more regulation uh, from the government enters into uh, competitive gaming and video gaming in general. And we talk about whether regulation, which is sort of kind of a dirty word, if that's really a bad thing or if that's a good thing for games. Uh, this was supposed to be part of a larger piece, but I got tired of waiting for Riot Games to get back to me to participate in the story, uh, and at some point I decided, you know what, fine, I'm just going to pull the trigger, put this interview up. I'm tired of emailing Riot, asking for them to get back to me about their questions, uh, because I think the conversation that uh, I had with David is really fascinating. We touch on this and then actually go off into some other topics uh, about fighting games and, and esports and and things of that nature that, you know what, I'm just going to let you guys you know listen to the whole thing because uh, I think it's really interesting. Can you just kind of give me uh, sort of like uh, up to date with your sort of involvement with the the community is still? I know you were doing um, sports comment uh, esports commentary. Is that still what you do in addition to to the day to day uh, lawyer thing? Yeah, um, I try to stay away from the term esports, but um, yeah, <laughs> that's right. I that's do, right. Okay, <laughs> I do do uh, fighting game commentary. I do do fighting game commentary. Yeah, I just at at Evo, I did a bunch. Did like 20 hours of commentary that weekend, uh, including a couple of the top eight finals for a couple of the games. Uh, and I haven't done anything since then, but that's just because not that much happens. After Evo, it tends to be a downtime. But uh, yeah, definitely still doing that. And how do, you, how do you balance that between your day job? Or is it that your day job revolves around more that, uh, the, the opportunities to do commentary? Uh, I have my own law practice. So I can set my own hours and take on however many clients I need or don't need at the time. Um, so I, I tend not to arrange my day to be 12 hours of work because um, I just don't feel the need to do that. Uh, so I have enough time that I can do other things too, like commentary. And, uh, you know, it's pretty busy uh, doing those two things. 
and one of them definitely makes me a little bit more money than the other one does. Uh, but eh, it's fun, so I, I'm I'm still doing it. I figure at some point I won't be able to do both, but I'm not there yet. So the the post you wrote was called uh, "Inviting Regulation: The Sportsification of Video Games," and you know you were writing about uh, the granting of P1 athlete visas. I was wondering if you could kind of just start up by sort of summarizing why this is a big deal. Because you obviously wrote something pretty lengthy and then went into a bit of legal fan fiction, which we'll, we'll get to in, in a minute. But, but why is this such a big deal? The visa stuff itself? Yeah. Uh, it marks the first time, well, actually not the first time, but uh, the second time that the U.S. government has ever granted athlete visas to a video game player. It actually did happen several years back when the whole competitive video gaming thing was a lot smaller. So it wasn't really a, the same kind of big news. Uh, this this is bigger both because the scene is bigger and because there's more money, but also because uh, people need to get into the U.S. so often now that it's probably going to happen again in, in you know pretty short work. Uh, so it, it's huge that the government now uh, has to bother with competitive gaming in some way. It has to, it has to contemplate it has to make regulations or reinterpret old regulations to deal with it. Uh, that shows that the competitive gaming scene is really big now, uh, that it has some clout, that it can get the government to listen to it. Uh, as, as far as getting it under the athlete visa, um, I mean, that's big for some people who like to, to make the whole video game is sports uh, comparison. Um, I don't really care about that, uh, but that was definitely a lot of hay. Uh, that was made. Uh, I think the the more important thing is not that video games are sports, but that video games got some legitimacy. Um, competitive video gaming got some legitimacy in the eyes of the federal government, and uh, that, that can be used in a lot of different ways. Uh, a sponsor who was maybe hesitant to support before now might look at the fact that the government officially recognizes video games as being something to you know, spend time on, and it might reconsider whether to support uh, competitive gaming. So it's got a lot of different different angles on it that I think are good. Uh, do you think it's just a semantics issue, and just because it's maybe old law uh, conforming to to new trends that sort of the term athlete is used? Because I I just imagine that 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 probably could be a point of contention, even if it is literally just sort of uh, language semantics. Well, yeah, I mean, there are only so many ways to get visas. Uh, there actually is another way, too. You can, well, a few other ways. Um, I think it's called an O-1 visa um, that has to do more with uh, extort somebody who possesses extraordinary skill in something um, rather than just being a, an athlete. But, uh, you know, I don't know why Riot chose to go the athlete route rather than the, the O-1 extraordinary skill route. Um but, uh, yeah, I mean, I totally forgot what the question was. I'm gonna be honest. <laughs> well, you, you, you mentioned it a bit in, in your, in your post, but you know, it's, are we gamers or athletes? And uh, I just, yeah. I just, I just, you know, the, the reason it seemed like you touched upon it was because it will become maybe this point of contention, but it really might just be, you know, a matter of legal semantics at the end of the day. Well, it has been a point of contention for quite a while in competitive gaming itself. And a lot of people want to make it. Uh, constant argument um, that uh, that video gamers are, are athletes. So I mean, it's something that people in competitive games have been dealing with for a little while. 
Um, I, I mean, I, I feel like there are people who have a financial investment in that. Uh, it's easier to convince somebody to to uh, play your video game for hours on end if what they're doing is not just spending hours on a video game, but practicing for a sport. Um, that's something that is legitimate already. People do spend many hours practicing for sports, um, you know, shooting a puck at, at a wall a hundred times, a thousand times. Something you got to do if you want to play hockey well. Um, so if, you're, if your business model is about having people put in time into your video game, uh, then I think that going the that, that using esports style terminology, that calling people athletes, uh, I think that that, that benefits you. Because uh, people play more, maybe they're more likely to buy a skin in something like League of Legends, uh, which is you know what Riot got it for, got the visa for. Um, so there's definitely that going on, uh, and people people want legitimacy, and I totally understand that because I also want legitimacy. But I think a lot of people want to go the kind of the long way. Uh, well, and I guess they're both potentially long ways, but. The way that I would prefer to go is just to make video games as video games legitimate, but uh, a lot of people think that that's not realistic or that it, uh, it won't happen anytime soon. Um, so they'd rather go video games are sports, which are legitimate. Um, so there's a little bit extra finagling in there. Um, it, it sounds like it's actually sort of uh, within the microcosm of, of video games, uh, you know, or a subgenre of games, similar to sort of like the our video games art argument, where it's like, sure. well, if we can convince people that they, to use this term, then we've made it, as opposed to, you know, if you just looked at games as, look how popular they are that everyone plays them, who cares if there are, everyone's enjoying this brand new medium? And it, it sounds like, specifically within your community, that's maybe one of those, like, where it is like, the, the language isn't that important, but people ascribe so much importance to it outside of it that people really want that to be part of it. Yeah, you, you know, I got a lot of, tweets after I put the article out there, I had a lot of conversations and, and quite a few people told me something like, uh, it's easier to tell, to tell their dad that they're playing a sport than it is to tell them that they're playing a video game. <laughs> As someone that writes about video games for a living, I, I can sympathize with how that, how that can go down, even though I've long come to terms with that not being an issue for, for me or how I feel about what I do. I, I can't imagine that, you know, when you do have those conversations with people that have no sense of that community or even the medium um, mm -hmm. that that language does matter or at least does have uh, a weight to it. it. It's strange though because in my own conversations with people, uh, I tend to find more success, more legitimacy just saying that I'm a video game commentator rather than saying I'm a sports commentator. Oh, what kind of sports? Video games. Then, you know, there's this, I have to go through this whole argument oh, really, video games are sports now, blah, blah, blah. Whereas if I were to just say uh, I'm a video game commentator, uh, people just kind of accept that. And maybe they think it's weird, but it's a, it's a more um, easily understood and I think, uh, I mean, in my own, own opinion, easier to legitimate, um, legitimize than, than the sports thing. But definitely I know a lot of people don't feel the same way. So it's kind of a, a, a big argument, I, I think. Do you, do you think that's similar to the tension that, that happens with the term esports, which, you know, comes with a lot of weight and connotations of sort of like corporate involvement and trying to ascribe to something that already exists with a brand new term 
Um, or do you think like, you know, the athlete gamer, uh, you know, or professional gamer, like tension is purely an internal thing. Cause I, I know that's, you know, definitely where a lot of this, the tension from esports comes is like, you know, other people coming in and putting that on something as opposed to the people within saying, this is something we want to do. Uh, it's definitely, uh, internal. Um, I, I would think, um, most of the people who I see use esports, the word esports, and similar terminology. Um, yeah, to be honest, a lot of them are, don't don't have a whole philosophy behind it. There's just it's just kind of like the common words that they go along with it. So I don't want to make it seem like everybody has an argument to make when they use the word. But certainly, a lot of people who do use the word are using it. Um, it's kind of like a rallying point, I would say, for a lot of people, uh, in the sense that it's it represents. Uh, a lot of good stuff, including this idea of legitimizing video games by making them sport. Um, so, yeah, it's it's definitely internal. Uh, in in terms of you know what's happened with the the P one visa, uh, how much you know f- from your legal perspective uh, is this seem like an exception to a rule, or do you think this is an exception to a rule that that starts a trend? Like, how much can you take away from this? Is it purely what Riot did? For this very specific instance, or does this now provide a path for other companies or other individuals to to try and do the same thing? It's really hard to say without knowing more uh, about the people who granted it in the State Department, or you know who who Riot talked to. Uh, I, I think that if we were to know that, we'd be able to answer that question a little bit better. But I I suspect that it's the start of a trend. Um, I mean, like I said, it's the second time. It's not actually the first time. So it's it's happened before. Um, but now that things are so much bigger and there are so many foreign players who come to play in the U.S. for a period of time, I, I would I just got to think that it would it'll happen more often. Um, I, I know of some other gamers who are using the O1 process um, who were in the middle of trying that O1 process when the news about the riots uh, visa thing was released. And they uh, they. Um, are now considering using the P1 uh, instead. And I don't, I don't know what's happening with that because last I heard it was a week and a half ago. Um, so I, I don't know what the deal is. But uh, certainly other people are trying it now or, or considering it. And I think that more people who do that, uh, the more likely it'll be that that uh, there will be new people given P1 visas. Do you have a sense of um, if people want to try and follow that that path uh, do you have more of a chance if you know you're associated with with a corporation who can sort of lobby on your behalf, or, or is there a lot of you know potential success for for individuals to try and go down the same route? You know, I I'm not enough of an immigration expert, I don't think, to to be <laughs> able to answer that well. But um, I would think that having a lot of people and money backing you would make it easier because it just tends to make interactions with the government easier in general. Um, but I, I just don't know enough to really be able to know the law on that. Um, so let's talk a little bit about uh, what you got into when you started to imagine uh, sort of the, the implications of this going forward, which uh, at first I expected just to be a paragraph or two, but then you, you really went for it. Um, what was your intention of like, was this just a personal exercise for you to try and figure out how this was gonna gonna play out? Like, talk, walk me a little bit through the the process there. 
I have like 15 or 20 articles that I've started and not finished on my hard drive, uh, just things that I think are interesting to think about. And so I, I start writing them and then I, things come up and I quit or whatever. So I started writing this a couple years ago and then didn't work on it at all until the riot news came out. Um, and then I thought that it might be timely. So I expanded it a little bit, although all, you know, I already had an outline for everything that I would have done. Um, just because I like thinking about stuff like that. And uh, so I, I turned it into this paper. Um, definitely, it's not, I like thinking about things and I like I like talking about things and, and uh, all that. But the two additional major goals were one, to get people to reconsider the use of words like esports um, and to reconsider the use of sports terminology in general when applied to video games. And that hasn't really been too successful. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people who are more intimately involved with the esports side of competitive gaming than I am, and they don't really seem like they have uh, altered their language, um, despite in some cases thinking that it's a really interesting paper and that it's you know kind of a scary idea. Uh, they, I don't know, it hasn't really seemed to work on that front. The other, the other side of it is that it's definitely advertising for me. Um, I, can like, <laughs> I can put out this article that I spent you know a few hours on and uh, get a ton of attention and hopefully some new clients. So I mean there's definitely like this personal side to it. Uh, but um, that's been more successful than the uh, than trying to get people to change language so far. So it's, it's been a success to some degree. Um, how much you know like you said you've been working on it in the past and then kind of worked on it and cleaned it up and, and finished it out uh, once once the riot news came out. Like, what was informing you to start writing this in the past? Was it purely just complete conjecture about where you saw where things were going or were there trends just as competitive gaming was becoming more of a thing and then the, the, the rise of, of esports? It, this just all seems sort of natural to you that it was maybe uh, you know more of a, it was going to happen, it was just a matter of when? Yeah, uh, when I first started putting the ideas together, it was all just entirely conjecture. Um, there, I wasn't aware of the previous visa granting situation that happened before I started writing this article. So I just was kind of making it up and trying to think about how the government might deal with video games if they were sports. I didn't honestly didn't even consider the, the visa thing. That was very interesting to me to find out that Riot had done that because um, I hadn't considered it. Uh, but, um, yeah, you know, I just, I really like thinking about law. I really like thinking about video games. It's just kind of, I mean, major reason why I went into law was just because it's kind of like an intellectual pursuit. Uh, I love reading about it and thinking about it. And uh, I've published a bunch of um, kind of pop style uh, papers like this, but also when I was in school, a couple of more uh, academic type stuff, which also focused on the intersection of video games and the law. So it's just something that I like to do. So, so as you kind of went through this thought experiment, what, what strikes you as potentially the biggest crossover between games and the law that you know maybe is unexpected at the moment, but is something that, that you've been thinking about that hasn't happened yet that, that you kind of explored in, in the paper? I wish that I had explored taxes better. Uh, just I didn't consider it before I published uh, this article, because I think that that's probably something to look at first. Uh, the government tends to be more interested in, in the dollars, 
and uh, and in taxes and IRS as uh, can be pretty um, aggressive. So I, I wish that I had talked about that more because there are ways that sports are taxed a little bit differently um, than uh, than non-sports. Uh, as far as the things that I did talk about, um, I think that that Title IX argument is really interesting. Uh, I uh, There are currently college teams um, already. StarCraft has a college league, for example. Um, there are lots and lots of fighting game clubs and, and other kinds of competitive video gaming clubs, including one, um, and I can't remember which one offhand, somewhere in the northern Midwest, where their club is going to start giving out scholarships, um, esports scholarships, hmm. um, which is really interesting. And the more that that happens, the better known those things become. Uh, uh, there's the much greater possibility that the government comes in and starts to regulate it. And if if video games are sports, if whoever, say somebody is working in the State Department and the person transfers over to whatever enforcement body deals with Title IX, um, you know, does, does that person think about these coll uh, collegiate leagues in a sports context when it comes to Title IX? If so, then I think that that's a definite possibility uh, that uh, Title IX regulation could come in. Um, uh, uh, other than that, uh, agents are are very re heavily regulated. There are uh, every every state has rules on on athlete agents, um, which makes me think, and, and quite a few rules in in fact, which makes me think uh, think that that's something that's enough of a concern that um, legislatures might tackle that before they tackle other things when it comes to to competitive video gaming. You know, you you use the term. Uh, regulation uh, in in the header of your of your paper, and I think the, the term regulation definitely has like a uh, in general negative connotation. But do you think that's the idea of regulation of you know video games, competitive sports, esports, you know whatever terminology you want to use? But the sort of general rise of competitive video games, like is regulation necessarily a bad thing? Is that thing something that people should be inherently fearful of, or you know, are there, you know, benefits such as, you know, the, the visas that that are actually going to, to benefit everyone, you know, net negative or net positive? Sure. I, I think that there can definitely be benefits out of regulation. Uh, I, am, I am not at all a completely anti-regulation person, whether in video games or in politics generally. Uh, I, I think that the, the visa example is a good one. Uh, I think that the regulation of people who hold themselves out as trainers and coaches can be important. Um, interestingly, there was a an article, uh, I'm trying to remember which website had it now, um, anyway, that talked about coaching and training in uh, in esports, like just the week after I put, I put this article out, it's very interesting. And they did talk to some people who held themselves out there as trainers and coaches, and they talked about how they believed in sound body, sound mind, and so they prescribed weightlifting routines and workout routines and all those things that trainers and coaches who, of athletes use. Um, and those people are, are tightly uh, regulated because that can be very impactful stuff. You know, you can really, you can either really help somebody out uh, by prescribing that kind of thing, or you can really screw them up. So that's something that states want to regulate. 
Um, so I think that that could be uh, an area where if there isn't regulation, there might be some problems. Um, and, you know, Title IX, too, I, I, I'm totally down with Title IX in athletics uh, and, and potentially so in video games. I, I just, if, if there were more of a demonstrated interest in, in competitive gaming um, by women, then I think that that would make sense. Uh, but, uh, you know, there's not, uh, at least for now. Um, and so applying regulations there might be an issue without that additional um, interest. But yeah, you know, definitely I think that there are ways that regulation can benefit competitive gaming. The question is, are people planning for that? Uh, my guess is no. Uh, and if you're not, then you can really get screwed up. Um, lots more paperwork that you're not expecting, more work, potential legal problems that you haven't expected uh, that you have to work around or that can you know real, really cause problems for you and and regulating video games as sports uh and and players as athletes can be an issue because they're just they're not necessarily the same thing and i don't really know if i want to get into whether video games are sports i feel right. like that's a, a second another question but there certainly are differences in the kind of competition that video games entail and the kind of competition that athletic sports entail. Um, different requirements on the body and the mind and how you practice and and the fact that uh, games are released on a, a, you know, a product cycle, that there's a new game coming out at some point. You can't, you can't play baseball forever if it's a video game. StarCraft eventually gets replaced by StarCraft 2, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are lots of, lots of ways where it doesn't necessarily make sense the regulation i mean uh when it comes to to video games uh so that that could be a problem i think um but no regulation itself is not is not necessarily a harmful thing um well then that that covers most of what i was curious about if you if you have an extra second um it's slightly off topic from this but i'm curious what you thought about the announcement about a bunch of the different tournaments adopting the sort of collusion rule to try and stomp out uh, collusion amongst players, uh, and what if you had any thoughts on on that in general, or whether that's even enforceable? Yeah, that's a really interesting development. Uh, I didn't expect it, which was uh, so it was it was very interesting to see. Um, I'm I'm definitely okay with enforcing that kind of rule when it comes to major tournaments because it's not. It's not just about the the top players at that point. Um, you know, I, I come from a, a playing background myself, and I know that if I were to lose somewhere in the tournament, and then uh, the people, the the guy who beat me gets to grand finals and goofs off, I feel disrespected as a player. Um, that that guy couldn't even respect me enough to actually play out the rest of the tournament. Um, I think that that sucks. It sucks from a commentary perspective because I don't want to have to take a match seriously that the players aren't taking seriously like why am i why am i bothering with that um it sucks for people at home who are watching because they don't have as good a time it sucks for sponsors because sponsors feel disrespected uh and their their efforts can be you know linked to uh or their name can be linked to this you know match fixing thing that nobody likes tournament organizers are annoyed because they put in all this time and work to you know, put on a good tournament and a good show, and and it gets screwed with. So everybody's mad, um, and and uh, so I I think that it's fine to to have that rule. Certainly, some top players are annoyed about it um, because they think, hey, it's just me. It's I. This is just about me at this point. I got 
this far in the tournament, I can do whatever I want. Uh, but I just don't think that that's that that's the reality of the situation. So I'm I'm cool with that. Uh, it's it's the media blackout side of it that I think is a little funky. Um, Event hubs and sure you can are the two major fighting game news websites, and they have both promised not to cover tournaments that don't have this rule and that don't enforce the rule. Um, I think that kind of sucks, uh, but it's just because I don't like blackouts in general. I don't like censorship in general. Um, right. They is, they is this is this in? I guess you know I'm a, I'm a layman in terms of this. You know I'm I'm definitely an outsider. Yeah. But yeah. like, is it, how enforceable? Like, is it so completely obvious that this is something that when it is an issue, it it is so completely like these guys are throwing it? Like, are there other examples? Like, did this happen? Has this happened recently, or is is the reason it's surprising because it hasn't been a problem? And to have this kind of come in right after Evo just finished up, uh, and you know that's why it strikes everyone as so surprising. It it has been a problem actually, especially this year. Uh, maybe the last year too, but it seems to be more of an issue nowadays than it used to be. Uh, there have been some high-profile examples of people in grand finals and and uh, earlier in the tournaments too, throwing matches or picking teams or characters that they don't really know how to use that well and just kind of goofing off. Um, if if you're if you're a, a well-informed fighting game player or fan, you can you can spot somebody who's intentionally underperforming pretty well i mean there are there are times when it's a debate um but for the most part i think that we can we can call that out we can we can figure it out the the some of the top players are annoyed because they're worried about those times though when it's debatable there might be a situation where somebody who normally picks a certain team or character picks a character or a team that everybody thinks sucks to deal with his opponent's character because he has his own ideas about which character or team is good and how they can be used. Mm-hmm. Um, so that that could be an issue. I just think that the people who run tournaments uh, are all players or, or or ex-players, and I think that they can do a decent job of of figuring it out. Um, it, it's always been a part of fighting game competition, uh, but it just seems like it's become a bigger one uh, in the last year, and I, I'm, I'm not even talking about just the the pot splitting thing. Right. Uh, that's that that has happened forever, uh, and it's really I think more about like rational economic decision making. <laughs> yeah. In uh, some ways, you can't really blame yeah. them, even though it, you know obviously it's not it's not fun for the crowd, it's not fun for the commentators, it's not. Well, you know, just just because they pot split doesn't mean that they have to not play the match seriously. When when I played, I I split pots. I, I did it, um, but I never gave up the match you know i never let my opponent give up the match um i don't think i considered it at the time actually that's that's what's strange and that's what the intentionally underperforming or collusion rule is intended to deal with you you really can't stop somebody from splitting a pot um i just i think it makes too much economic sense unless you really think that like you are by far the best player um that you're you're going to dominate or unless you i guess you don't like the player who you're playing against otherwise you might as well just split because why take the risk that you don't earn Money is just you know, it's it's the other side of it. It's the underperforming side of it that uh, that this rule is supposed to deal with. So, so you think it's something that you know, although there are players that are worried about how it would be applied in like the really gray areas, that in general the people who do have you know been watching this scene for for at least you know now decades, like it's going to be obvious, it's going to be clear, and that you think it's it's a fairly easily if controversial rule to to enforce in the situations where 
you know, it's going to be pretty obvious that you need something like that. Or maybe it just deters it and then, you know, people will kind of distance themselves from it entirely. Hopefully it does deter it. But if it were to come up, I do think that most of the time a tournament organizer could make the right decision. Uh, that's not to say that it, he always would. There is there is the possibility that 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 person could screw up. Um, but I think that the people who run tournaments tend to know more or less uh, whether somebody is is underperforming or, or throwing a match. Cool. All right. Well, David, I appreciate you walking me through the, the visa stuff and then, yeah, and, then sure. and, and talking about some of the clues and stuff because as you know as, again as someone who's a layman like I find these angles are where uh, I get really interested in, in talking about some of the nuance even if uh, you know the actual the games themselves aren't aren't what appeal to me but all mm-hmm. this stuff all this stuff is super fascinating so so I definitely appreciate it